If you want to listen to these stories and go, okay, let's see. So, okay, you can actually get out of that situation and be all right. Okay, maybe I don't have as many things to worry about as I thought I did. Then that's a useful exercise. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, for all my fix and flippers out there, are your financing costs eating away at your bottom line? And are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by lowering your loan payments to the bank or maybe your private lender? Well, our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, you know Patch of Land, they've been on the show, representatives of their company have been on the show many times, they've been a sponsor of this show many, many times, they're back for more because they love you and they love working with the best ever listeners and they've got an interesting point of view on interest rates and that is that it's... The interest rates that we are quoted shouldn't necessarily be taken at face value because perhaps a higher interest rate could actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And they have a white paper on how that is possible and how that can be applied to your fix and flip business to help your bottom line get more profitable and to help you choose the best uh, lender for your financing needs. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and they've got a white paper for you and it will walk you through the way to evaluate interest rates in terms in general on your loan so that you truly are getting the best interest rate because there are some tricky things some lenders try to do to um, glaze over the fact that their lower interest rate, quote unquote, is actually higher based on some technical things that they put into it. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and get that white paper so that you can save money on your fix and flip projects. Patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Kimberly Banks Fawcett. How you doing, Kimberly? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's our pleasure. A little bit about Kimberly. She is a portfolio manager at Inspired Capital Group. And Inspired Capital Group invests in non-performing mortgage notes on residential and commercial properties. She was raised by some real estate investors and bought her first rental property three months after graduating college. Based in Plano, Texas, with that being said, Kimberly, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I'm focused on forming notes because I spent so many years as a landlord. I did the typical, everything was going great, went to a RIA, sat in on a meeting where someone told me that I no longer had to deal with tenants. I could actually deal with people that cared about the property as much as I did. And I was hooked. So in 2013, I pretty much stopped being a landlord and I became a note investor. And I've never really looked back. Pros and cons, as objectively as you can look at it, pros and cons of both sides. Well, I'd say the pros are, again, they're as interested in the property as you are. That's always helpful. I also really like the fact that I can make that cliche work, the win-win-win. I make money for myself. I make money for my investors. And I help out the borrowers on the deals that I can actually help them come out on the better side of their bad situation. Those are just the home runs for me. On the con side, I would say 
The regulations that we have to deal with, not that I have a problem with the idea of taking care of people and doing it the right way, but you hire a servicer to work on your notes. And I can honestly say that you have to be on top of the regulations as well. You can't count on your servicer always covering you. And I think that's a bigger burden than most landlords have. I think also in this current environment, there are people that actually train homeowners how to stay in their home without paying their mortgage for longer periods of time. And you don't find that in a rental situation. If you're not going to pay your rent, you either leave or you wait to get evicted. There's no training on how to extend that. (laughs) So a lender that is doing everything right, a borrower can stall fixing the situation for forever nowadays. Mm -hmm. So I'd say those are pretty much the pros and cons on my I'm impressed. I think you did objectively look at that. So I am grateful that you did that. So let's talk about the cons first, then we'll talk about the pros. Cons, regulations, you mentioned you can't necessarily count on your servicer staying on top of the regulations. For someone new to investing in notes, what's a servicer and what are the regulations that you need to stay on top of? Your servicer is the person that has the licenses in the different states that you want to operate in. They have a debt collector's license. So they are the ones that are going to stay on top of how things have to be done to treat your borrowers with respect and help them succeed as much as possible and to keep you compliant. The problem is your servicers don't care as much about your money as you do. So while they do follow the regulations, they're not necessarily sharing with you what's going on. So you're not necessarily covered. Let me give you an example. I had a borrower that we were foreclosing on and finally she got her modification paperwork in and we were going to look it over. Now you cannot be foreclosing and actively looking at a loan modification at the same time. That's called dual tracking and it's not fair to the borrower. While they're doing all the right things, you can't take their house. Mm-hmm. But she turned her paperwork in the day before the foreclosure sale. So we immediately stopped the foreclosure sale, started looking over her paperwork, but the servicer did not tell her that we stopped the foreclosure. Mm. So she went ahead, she had a little coaching, as I mentioned before, she went ahead (laughs) and and got me in trouble with the CFPB. All I had to do was have an attorney write a response to them saying, no, 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 we really did stop it. She just wasn't notified. And when I went back to the servicer, their comment was, well, we can't call her on that. We can't email her on that. We had to put it in writing. What? How long is it going to take her to mail a letter? The sale is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So what would have made sense is either to tell me that, and I would have called her or had the attorney call her, or go ahead and send her an email and follow up with the official legal document. Yeah. So their process while following probably all the rules, got me in trouble. Mm -hmm. It only cost me $250 for a letter to explain the situation. all went away, not a big deal. But that's just an example of how even hiring someone to take care of this can still be an issue. If you were presented that circumstance again, which you might be, it's tough because you don't know if the servicer is actually doing some common sense things. Because by the book, perhaps, but common sense, come on. So how would you approach that differently, if at all, on the next go-around? I would quiz them mercilessly on how they do it. That actually applies to everything you do with a servicer. Don't assume that they're doing it logically. I would say, okay, fine, we've stopped it. How does this person find out that we've stopped it? What's the best way of doing it? And if they had said, well, we have to put it in writing, I would have immediately had my attorney make a phone call. 
would have been mm-hmm. a lot cheaper to have my attorney make a phone call yeah. and have to write a letter <laughs> to the CFPB. So it's one of those situations you don't know what you don't know. So this is a great example why I think note investors really do a good job for themselves when they listen to different interviews, talk to different investors, because we all experience different problems. And if you can hear the problem that I had, you'll avoid it. If I can hear the problem you had, then I can avoid it. And going that way, it's a great way to build like a collective intelligence in the community. Oh, yeah. And thank you for sharing that and adding to that collective intelligence. You mentioned CFPV. What's that stand for? Consumer Finance Protection Board. And they're basically the people that the organization was put together by the government to deal with some of that robo-signing and unjust practices that people were doing to take advantage of some of the, I'd say, lower price point borrowers, some borrowers that might not natively speak English. Mm-hmm. And they were doing all of these loans that nobody could afford and got everybody in trouble. So it was one of their efforts to try and keep that from happening again. What's another question that you would ask the servicer? A specific question or just in general how their processes work? Either one. Whatever's top of mind for you when I ask you that. Well, the one that I am currently struggling with, because I have a few servicers that I use. What I like to do is I have a couple that I like. And then if I buy a couple of new assets and they're at another servicer, I'll leave them there and see how it goes. See if maybe I want to add them or Mm-hmm. Never deal with them again. <laughs> uh, the problem that I've been having is with force-placed insurance. And to explain what that is, if your borrower is not paying for insurance, there has to be insurance on that asset. That's your collateral. So you force-place insurance upon them as the lender. It ends up being much more expensive, and it ends up not covering as much as the borrower would like it, but my collateral is at least protected. So for me to be able to charge back that expense to my borrower – I have to do a bunch of disclosures to give them the opportunity to get their own insurance or prove they have insurance or all of that. I have found over time that every servicer does it differently. So Mm. you have to quiz them on how that's happening because ultimately if I pay a thousand dollars for this insurance, if I can't charge it back to them, that hits my ROI pretty hard. And again, I need to look out for my money. I can't just rely on the servicer making sure they're doing it in a way that protects me. So that's a huge question that I ask every servicer. When you ask the question or questions to them about their forced place insurance, what response is your ideal response? My ideal response would be, there are three letters that need to go out to give them the opportunity to take care of this. We send the first one out, say, as soon as we board, we send the second one out. If we haven't heard from them in a month and a half, and we send the final one out saying, hey, you have not done this. You will be charged for this insurance. That would be the perfect response. A lot of times I've gotten, no, we don't do that. You'll have to send your own letters. Mm. Well, that's the reason why I have a servicer, because mm-hmm. I don't have the license to get that close to my borrower. <laughs> You've had this conversation before with someone, haven't you? <laughs> that's funny. Okay. And the other kind, and then we're going to get in the pros that you mentioned, this actually bleeds into what you're talking about before is there's actually people out there training homeowners how to stay in their home longer without paying the mortgage. So you're just having to fight against that. Yes. And some of the things they do raise are legitimate. Like you don't have proof of the payment history. Sometimes when you buy a note, the payment history that you've gotten from the previous lender, it's a little fuzzy. There's some holes. As an aside, that's pretty easy to deal with because you just waive the payments that are being contested. Okay, sure, you made those. I'm still ahead because I bought the loan so cheaply. Mm -hmm. But you have to address that in court. 
it doesn't work to just send them an email saying, okay, sure, whatever. I mean, anything that goes to court takes more time. So that's two, three, six more months they're living free. Mm. Got it. Let's talk about the pros. And you mentioned you used to be a landlord and then you realized you didn't want to mess with the tenants and all that stuff. So you said two pros is you have people interested in the property, number one, and you can make it a win-win-win for you, investors and homeowners. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. If someone's living in a home, they care about it. If the roof is leaking, they're generally going to get it fixed if they have the money, obviously. If you have a tenant in your single family house, I actually had a friend that had this problem. She was tired of calling her landlord and the upstairs bathroom was leaking. There was like a waterfall coming down from the <laughs> upstairs when we were at this party. And she's like, yeah, it does that sometimes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> When you have someone that cares about the house, they're going to fix that. Chances are you won't have a borrower set off fireworks inside the house where that can happen with a renter. You're just dealing with a different group of people. Mm -hmm. And since you're not there peeking in the windows all the time, you just have a better level of comfort that that asset is being taken care of. It's not a guarantee. It's just a higher probability. Does it set you up for long-term wealth like buying and holding a single family home would? Not typically. If you like modifications, which I tend to, they're a wasting asset. With every payment, it's worth less because the print, I mean, obviously in the beginning, it's mostly interest, but when they're paying off their principal, there's less and less value in that note. So you have to be careful how you structure that. You can't just have a portfolio of modifications and not manage it to make sure it's not losing value. So it is different in that respect. And I don't know that all note investors really focus on that. I think when you buy a note, you don't know what your exit strategy is. You know what you want it to be. And you know from looking at your ROI calculator, which one looks prettiest. But it's what the borrower wants, what the borrower is willing to do, what you can make happen. So if you end up with a bunch of mods and a bunch of REOs and some of those you rent and some of those you fix and flip, you can blend your business so that it's not a wasting asset pool. But if you don't realize that your asset is getting less and less valuable, I think you could end up kind of sunk after a while. Can you elaborate on that last part that you mentioned? Which part? The very last part. Say you have a portfolio of, I don't know, we'll just throw out 75 notes. They're all modified. They're all paying. Well, every single month, they're paying off a little bit of the principal. So at the end of the month, your assets are worth less. There's less oh. that's going to be coming in at a certain time. And if you just stayed in that portfolio, eventually they would all be paid off and you would have nothing. Mm. Now, did you take the money and reinvest it? Well, if you're smart, you did. So you probably bought other assets. But if you're not paying attention, eventually there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. It's not a purchase with your servicer and just let sit and expect it to be worth something after 10 years, whatever. Because mm -hmm. remember, the average person also only stays in their home for seven years. So then your loan is completely gone then. I mean, you get a nice payoff and all of that. But if you don't wisely invest it in more assets, you're not going to keep your portfolio valuable or substantial, maybe is a better word. I'm glad you mentioned that. I haven't heard anyone talk about that as it relates to note buying. And it's something I should have picked up on, but I haven't. So thank you for mentioning that. So you're actively managing your portfolio and 
actively optimizing it as you're going along, right? Yes. I started out wanting to do mostly mods, and now I have changed it up a bit where there are certain markets in the country that I have a great team that I really like to, obviously, I want to work with the borrower. Don't get me wrong. My first choice is to help them out. But if I have to take back the property there, I don't mind. So I'll buy some more vacant ones in that area, just in the hopes of taking back the property and going that route. What's the most profitable approach or exit for you? For me, it's usually, it's more work, but it's usually taking it back and doing a really nice renovation and selling it retail. Again, I only do that in certain markets, not because I have problems with other markets. I've just built better teams in certain areas. So I love taking a house that's okay and making it great and then helping out another borrower. I love to do it owner financing if I can. Some markets don't support that or it's affluent enough area that they don't need to buy it on terms. They can just go ahead and get a regular mortgage. But I think the fix and flips in my favorite markets are probably my most profitable. Could you estimate for us in your portfolio now which ones are modifications versus fix and flips versus whatever else, just so we can get a rough percentage? Let's say over 10 deals, four of them I mod, five of them I foreclose, and then I'll have one that I can do like a short sale or a deed in lieu on. More short sales and deed in lieu. I find that people, they've been dealing with this stress of what am I going to do about my house? What am I going to do about my house? It's hard to really talk to them about, well, you know, if you just sign this document, I'll give you a little money to go away. I find that a harder sell. It just sounds almost too good to be true to them Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I'd say most of mine are probably foreclosures. Okay. Based on your experience in this industry, what's something that you see people starting out doing or reading about or thinking about and spending time on that is a waste of time as it relates to note buying? Oh, note buying has a lot of rabbit holes. You very often find a new note investor going, okay, but what if, and then what if this happens? Well, I don't think those are bad questions and it does depend on your mind. I'm a what if kind of person, but you have to find out if that's logical. For example, I bought this one deal in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the seller had me, when you're in that transition of when you've closed, but when the assignments are recorded and all of that, it was getting ready to go to tax sale. So my seller had me pay the taxes to their law firm so their law firm could pay it. Well, in the process of doing that, the law firm went bankrupt. They closed their doors. They wouldn't respond to my emails. They wouldn't respond to the seller's emails. And I ended up losing $18,000. Now, okay, that happened. That's not great. But how often is that going to happen? So sometimes if I'm presenting on deals, I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to spend that time in that rabbit hole. Yes, it happened. It sucks. It was awful. You don't want it to happen to you. I get it. But I've done getting close to 200 deals. It's happened once. So I've also had a deal where the house was actually gone by the time I closed on the deal. It had gotten destroyed in a tornado. I still made money on that deal. But now people could be afraid of a tornado, could be afraid of bankrupt attorneys. If you're getting all caught up in the afraid things, you're going to stop yourself. If you want to listen to these stories and go, okay, let's see. So, okay, you can actually get out of that situation and be all right. Okay, maybe I don't have as many things to worry about as I thought I did. Then that's a useful exercise. Mm. What's something that on the flip side, you would make sure you teach any beginning note investor? 
I think to double check your vendors, for example, when you're doing your due diligence and you're trying to get a value on a property, I will talk to a local realtor or I will order a BPO, but I also use a service called We Go Look and they go to the property and they take at least 10 pictures of the property for me. They get all four sides of the house and they'll make some kind of indication of what they think the condition of the house is based on the neighborhood. Now, they're not realtors, so they're not giving me a value estimation. But I now have independent pictures and an independent comparison to put together with my BPO. Because some BPO agents, they don't want to get out of the car. They don't really care. They're not attention to detail. They just want their $75 and move on. So I can compare these two, and I get a much more accurate picture of the real condition of that house. So have to double check your vendors. And I think the other thing for a new investor, especially in this current market, prices are going up and you have to make sure your ROI is going to work on these higher prices because everybody wants to get in their first deal. They're so excited to suddenly be a note investor. But if you overpay going in, you're never going to make that money back up. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful. You can't be so eager that you end up ruining the deal before you're ever really in it. Now, I'm going to ask you a question I ask everyone, and you might say, well, Joe, I just said it. So if that's the case, then we'll roll with it. But if you've got something in addition to share with the listeners, then please do so. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I would say focus, but not the focus that most people say. Most people say, pick one thing, do it, and become fantastic at it. I disagree. I think you need to focus on what your end goal is, what you want to be great at, and then take all of your activities and draw them there. For example, I want to be a great note investor. So the fact that I have residential real estate experience, I also have commercial real estate experience. I have experience in firsts. I've done some seconds. I've done some contract for deeds. And all that together makes me a better note investor. I'm more accustomed to different outcomes. I'm accustomed to different headaches. I've taken the nuances and how to do each one of those things and put them together so that I have a better picture. So now that I have been doing residential notes for so long, I can build up my commercial portfolio because I have experience in that investing and I'm going to be able to bring it together in the fund that we're getting ready to put together at a much higher level. So some might look back and go, okay, wait a minute, you can't do commercial and residential and first and second. I think you can, as long as you're using them as a tool to learn how to be better at the end. Mm. That's powerful. I'm enjoying that because it is more of the end goal that we're focused on and ultimately what you want to be great at. And then leveraging that to then get you there, there might be different iterations of it along the way, but ultimately you've got to focus on what the end game is. I love that. What's one challenge that you've come across that we haven't talked about already as an investor, whether it was pre-note buying or now? I think actually a love of real estate is a problem because you want to do everything. This sounds cool and that sounds cool and, oh, I can make money with that. And you have the squirrel syndrome that everybody talks about. What's the squirrel syndrome? I haven't heard of that one. Oh, well, I'm on this track. Oh, squirrel. There's a new idea. Oh, (laughs) squirrel. You know, oh, I could find properties that way. It's just, you're all over the place. (laughs) So I think, but that ties in with what I was just talking about, focusing on your end goal. It's okay to do different things as long as they're going to take you to one place. So. 
you said you're putting together a fund. What's the amount that you're looking to bring equity-wise? Well, we're going to start at $5 million. Everybody tells me that a fund for less than that would be not worth the cost. Right. Um, and I'm one of those, I don't want to bite off more than I can chew. So we're going to start at $5 million. And that will allow us to do some residential and a nice, sizable commercial one all in the same place. And I think it's going to be great. Where are you at in that process? We have our attorney picked out and we have brainstormed all of our ideas about how we want it to operate and who we want to be business partners and all of that. But we haven't put it on paper yet. That's for 2018. Mm, Okay. And we're going to do a best ever lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right. Once you're ready, we're going to do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space, but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com. Best ever book you've read? The One Thing by Gary Keller. Best ever deal you've done? I bought a note in Florida that I was hoping to take back as an REO. And within, I think it was 36 days, they gave me a full payoff. I almost didn't have to bother boarding it. I did, I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do, but I got a full payoff, which was twice what I paid for it. So in 36 days, I made a little over 100% of my money. What's the best ever way you like to give back? I enjoy working with the homeless in our area. There's two different organizations that I work with. One focuses on feeding dinner every night so that they at least have one really good meal during the day. And then the other one is part of a shelter that offers job training and daycare for the kids while you're doing your job training. So that one gives you more of a hand up rather than a hand out. And I like working in that population and I like the comparison of the two organizations. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and your company? My company's name is Inspired Capital Group. Website is inspiredcapitalgroup.com. And then I'm on Facebook too. So I'm pretty easy to find. Well, thank you for being on the show and spending some time with us and sharing your knowledge of note buying and the pros and cons. As I'm going to say, you really did objectively. So bravo on that. It'd be tough for me to say that for multifamily. So I I appreciate you being objective there. And then also giving us a 2.0 lesson on some things that you're working through. And that is the force placed insurance and some questions that you ask and ultimately what you want to hear from the servicer. And then the modification process, if you have all of the loans that have been modified and they're paying like clockwork, then congratulations, but eventually your portfolio is going to be zero. So (laughs) I never thought about that. That's very interesting. That's something to keep in mind. And then lastly, it's okay to do different things, but you got to know your end game and what you're good at. So 
Thanks for being on the show. Great stuff. I hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Take care. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space, but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com.